This morning we're going to be in John chapter 8, starting with verse 31. The last time we saw Jesus presenting himself as the light of the world. And today Jesus is going to teach on the truth. And the truth almost gets him stoned to death. And we would look at that and say, that's weird. Why would that be? Well, there's an expression, the truth hurts. Um, We're usually very kind to each other at church, we hope. Uh, But there may be a time where someone approaches us and says to us, they expose hypocrisy or a lie or something we're into that we shouldn't be doing. And the truth can do a few things. It could either cause us to defend ourselves. It could cause us to build up a force field not accept responsibility, or the truth, as Jesus says, can make us free. And the truth he's speaking about is God's truth. There's only one truth. Two plus two for eternity will always equal four. That's just the way it is. Uh, So Jesus is going to speak about the truth, and obviously it's not going to be taken very well, but there's some things that we can learn from what he says as well, and we'll jump into that. Verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Typical discussion, Jesus is on a spiritual plane because this is the plane that goes on for all eternity. The flesh, the body, what do we get out of these bodies? 70, 80, 90 plus years, and then that's it. It's done. Dissipates, it goes back into the ground. Jesus wanted us to focus on where we will spend our abode or abiding in eternity. So he's speaking about slavery, but a spiritual slavery. They're looking at it in a physical sense. And we're going to see three concepts or three uh, points in the scripture where Jesus uses a spiritual understanding and they're still stuck in their physical and temporal understanding. So the Lord's warning is that a spiritual slave has no inheritance and eventually leads to spiritual death. Now I want you to turn with me to Romans 6. Romans 6, starting with verse 11, written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, two Christians. This is important as we go through this. Remember, he's speaking to Christians. Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection was important because his substitutionary death on the cross and his Uh, consequently or subsequent death and resurrection led to our having eternal life. However, the resurrection also was symbolic. It was definitely physical. That's the 99.9% of why it's important. But we can also see symbolism as we go along. As, As Paul reads, he's speaking about being dead to the flesh, being dead to our old ways, but resurrected in newness of life. So understand that concept as we go through this. He says, therefore, verse 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead 
and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Remember, there's a will issue. He's addressing our will. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 15. What then shall we sin, because we are not under law, but under grace? So even in his discussion, he's playing the part of the polemic. He's playing the part of as if he was speaking to another person. So basically, well, we're under grace. That means we can do whatever we want, right? No. He says, shall we sin? And he says, no, certainly not. 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Delivered. Why be delivered from the, the destructive nature of sin to send us into judgment, to hell, only to live a lifestyle of sin and stay slaves of sin after we've trusted in our Lord who's freed us from that lifestyle, who gave us the possibility to say no and to resist that. 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members of slaves of righteousness for holiness. The old life, what you did before, versus what God is doing or wants to do through you now if you allow him. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pretty powerful. So the Lord offers us freedom from these things. What the world looks at as freedom and what God says about freedom are two different things. Unfortunately, in the secular view, we think we're free, but we're really slaves to sin. So, Pastor Joe, this morning, give me the bottom line. We got about 35, 40 minutes. Tell me, how do I do this? What's the vehicle? Here it is. The first one, to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We cannot have eternal life unless that happens. To believe that he died for our sins, that he died a substitutionary death on the cross, that he rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures, and therefore if we believe on him, we take upon his nature and we have eternal life. The second thing is to abide in his word. Now let's not gloss over that. Abide doesn't mean fickleness. It doesn't mean we follow the word when we feel like it. It doesn't mean we're in an emotional mood for someone to throw a scripture at us. It means to remain, to stay, to live, to abide as you would in your home. Discipleship is perseverance, not fickleness. Third, when we are in his word, we will know the truth. Everything about the spiritual world, the mysteries are now unlocked as we read the scriptures and God reveals the truth to us. All right, new understanding. I had um, uh, our church Facebook wall uh, post a gentleman put in about his family, and he said, I've been here for a few months, and it's amazing sitting under God's word, not Pastor Joe, God's word, what it's done for my family, how it's transformed my life. God's word is powerful, but more and more pulpits are turning away from God's word. That's a mistake. It's tragic. 
Four, when we know the truth, the truth will make us free and unburdened from the sins of slavery or sin slavery. Now, true freedom is not to live an unrestrained lifestyle, to feed our flesh. Any kind of flesh or cravings that comes from our body, we just want to feed it. I'm hungry. My belly's talking to me. I'm going to feed it with food. I'm feeling frisky. I need to feed my flesh with sexual activity. You know, whatever the case may be, I want to be comfortable. So I'm going to do things that comfort myself. We become sins to our own lusts, whims, and desires. But that's not true freedom. Um, we saw last Sunday, Santos was here. Man in the entertainment industry, rubbed elbows with the biggest, uh, and the, the man's very talented, as you heard. Very talented. Singing, plays uh, musicians, and uh, he lived a lifestyle of money, drugs, women, fast life. And he spoke about what had got him, almost death a few times. I just read another article about, and I remember seeing this kid, 29-year-old reality star Joey Kovar, dead. They found him. The preliminary uh, reports are that it was a drug overdose. You ever see this kid? Good-looking kid. He's got money. He's got success. And they get hooked on drugs. They're trying to find a different reality. They're trying to find a freedom different from what God's Word says. And I don't condemn the poor kid. I grieve for his family. We need to pray for the entertainment industry because this stuff is pandemic. It's an epidemic. True freedom is to know God's word and to live the way God designed us to live. If you buy a car and the manufacturer says you got to put 93 octane gasoline in it and you fill it with orange juice, you're not going to go very far because the car was not designed to run on orange juice. The Bible tells us how we were designed in the spirit to, to, to live and to be God successful. So we can't fill our spiritual gas tanks with orange juice. It's just not going to work. Let me just give you an example about slavery, the physical concept. And let me just use a, a real-life example, a little bit of show and tell. And um, is the, are the chains bothering you? You know, I can drink as much as I want. I can sin as much as I want. I can change sexual partners as much as well. I'm free. Can't you see? Oh, the chains. I, well, you know, they're a little restrictive, but they give me the freedom to do what I want. I don't need God. I'm free to be whatever I want to be. But what they don't see is they're stuck in slavery. They're stuck in bondage. The links are holding them to this world. You know? Well, the chains, they um, provide a little bit of movement. But they do kind of keep me from everlasting life. But hey, I can live with it. Sometimes people are in chains for so long that they get comfortable that way. Right? Don't they? It becomes something where you become... You become a, and slavery is, is so offensive to even speak about it in polite company. It was bad in America's history, but it was far worse in Roman's history. No tolerance. That's what crucifixion was... Uh, was used for a runaway slave they were considered property but you know when some of them were freed or when freedom came some of them stayed in the house because that's all they knew and when you're a, a slave of drugs or yourself or constantly giving into your whims and desires this is what you get and people become comfortable with it now who took my handcuff cake <laughs> just kidding 
Galatians 5 tells us that it's a choice. We can either walk in the Spirit or we can walk in the flesh. Isn't that amazing? Even as a believer, God still gives us free will. And he asks us to make the choice of whether we'll follow him to righteousness or we'll keep feeding our flesh and not getting anywhere in life. Verse 33, they responded, well, we're Abraham's descendants and we've never been in bondage. They actually were in bondage at that time to the Roman Empire. A lot of things they couldn't do because the Romans restricted them. They were a little deceiving themselves. But here's a picture of religious, proud, self-righteous people. They didn't see their spiritual deficit. Even today, in the church, in the body of Christ, the proud, the self-righteous religious person is always a hindrance to true ministry. They'll always sit back as if they've arrived and point fingers and have a critical spirit of how this isn't going right and that's not going right and I could do a better job certainly if I was in charge. So this, this religious, self-righteous, proud attitude of the people. And even in Romans 10, 1 through 4, which we'll get to, the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says that the people develop their own righteousness, a self-righteousness apart from God's righteousness. Not good. Verse 35 and 36, Jesus speaks about he going from slavery to sonship. And as the son of God, he was able to pave the way for that. Right? Think about that concept in the Roman Empire, how a slave was treated. Imagine for a family to adopt that slave and say, you're a son now. When we die, you get all inheritance. You can eat at the table with us. You can fellowship with us. You have all the rights of this family. And spiritually, that's what Jesus Christ provides for us. We can go from the slavery to our own selves and desires to sonship in the house of God. John 1, he's adopted us into his family. 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Again, Jesus is on a spiritual plane. We saw this with Nicodemus. We saw this with the woman at the well. And we're seeing it again, always on that spiritual plane. The second concept he transitions to is spiritual father and spiritual children. Now, in verse 37, he speaks about, um, he speaks about uh, basically the descendants. And then later on, he speaks about Abraham's children. Now, the descendants, the word in the Greek is sperma, literally means seed. You're passing genetic information from the parent to the children. But then he steps it up and he speaks about being Abraham's children, which has a spiritual significance. One passes on genetic information. You don't have to be like your parents, but you will in some ways through DNA. The other, in the other sense, you take on character from your parents. And this is certainly uh, aimed at spiritual parents. Now I have to digress for a moment because you wonder, as we read the scripture, wasn't didn't it just say that Jesus is speaking to those that believe him? It almost seems like it's getting contentious here. So this, is, this has to be addressed. The answer is there's a mixture. 
There were those that believed truly. There was saving faith. And there were others that were really false believers. To the true believer, he wanted them to step up. He didn't want them to stay in immaturity. He wanted them to challenge them to bigger things. To those who were make-believers or false believers, I believe, it's just my opinion, he seemed to dissuade them. Why? Because as this fledgling church started to grow, those tares, those make-believers, would cause a lot of problems in the beginning. And it was, it was serious. The Judaizers would come in and say, yeah, we believe in the Jewish Messiah. Hey, by the way, you've got to keep the law. I have Jewish friends who are preachers, and they tell me in the Messianic community, they're fighting that good fight. Because the Judaizers, 2,000 years later, are still saying you have to keep all the Mosaic law. We can't. The law was done, designed to show us our deficit and our need for a Savior. That's not what the gospel message is about. So, in that spirit, God will remove at times the tares from the church. Now, when we look at Jesus' preachings, we see the parable of the wheat and the tares. There's wheat, good fruit, and then there's tares, the weeds, and they grow together. And it's only later in the judgment where God separates the sheep from the goats, for those on the right hand and on the left hand. But there are Christian frauds in all churches all around the world. It's just the way it is. So he dealt with it back then, and it has to be dealt with uh, today as well. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So here's where he hits them right between the eyes. Now, I think as we go through this, if you've never read this before, you kind of get the idea why they picked up stones and tried to kill him. I mean, he pretty much, your father is the devil. What are the implications of that? There's nothing good in that. So this is the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree principle in a spiritual sense. Now, we as believers may have had some that have discipled us. And sometimes if we have someone who disciples us, and let's say they have a real critical spirit, they're judgmental. If they disciple us, sometimes we can take those characteristics. They're not good. So Jesus is speaking to them and saying, in your heart, you want to kill me. You don't want to hear the truth. Your father is not Abraham. Your father is not God. Your father is the devil. He was a murderer. He was a liar. And when he speaks these things, he speaks his own native language. Verse 43, he says, why don't you understand? He says this a few times, challenges them. And the answer to know is to know in familiarity, right? To have familiarity with his words, with God's word. Again, to make it a lifestyle, to have a relationship with what God says in his word. What's preventing them? Well, definitely Satan, the devil. Definitely a stubborn will and a stubborn heart. Certainly self-righteousness for them thinking, hey, we're okay, we've arrived. There's nothing else we can learn. And that's what hindered them. And the truth is that, is it really Christian if we don't follow Christ's words? You know, I try to, when I speak to someone who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, maybe they're a cultural Christian. Wow, so you read the Bible? No, I don't read the Bible. 
And I say, well, in John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my word. Now, if he divides the world into two camps based on if they love him or not, based on if they read his word and follow it or not, I certainly, when the end comes, I want to be on the good camp. You know, So I'm going to see what his word says and really do my best to follow his word. So the question is, where do we stand this morning? Because Jesus takes it, takes it up a notch. And I think our applications need to be stronger as well, need to be more challenging. Is our life uh, a purely worldly life where we just put a Christian stamp on it or put a fish on our car? Fish on a car is not a bad thing, but does it reflect our lives? Are we true disciples? Is our lives characterized by obedience to his word? Now, I think in American culture, listen, you can go to Indonesian culture, Indian culture, you can go to Sudanese culture. Well, we live in America. And sometimes we're so into this whole freedom thing, or what we think is freedom, that we can be rebellious. Nobody can tell me what to do. If I don't like a rule here or there, I'm going to get an attorney and sue you and change the rules. We're becoming a nation, a nation of individuals instead of a, and it's tearing us apart. It's tearing us apart. Obedience, we don't want to hear obedience. We don't want to hear those things. But the truth is, we need to be obedient. We need to be obedient to God's word and the dictates, how it dictates our lifestyle. And we can change. That's the good news. You know, I never want to come up here and paint a picture or read something and say, gee, I throw my hands up. I can't do this. I'm not going to come back to church. No, we can change. The Bible's very clear about that. 45. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Wow. Hears God's words, lives it, understands it. That's what we do. He said, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. The Lord uses a lot of repetition. I believe in my heart that even the most stubborn, the most self-righteous, the most pharisaical in that group, he still wanted to win them over. Does God speak just to hear himself speak? You know, as a parent, when you repeat things to your children, doesn't it get old after a while? After the fifth, fifth, sixth, seventh time, how many times do I have to say it? So does God need to keep repeating himself? His words are precious. When Christ repeats himself in the scripture, it's something we need to pay attention to. I believe he was trying to win them over. He was trying to convict their hearts. And even some of them, over time, Acts 6-7 says that even some of the priesthood became saved. So they, they hid his words in their heart. They might have been rebellious at first, but it does appear that they changed for the better. Verse 47 is about God's word, God's word, God's word. Are we students of the word? Now, how do we feel when we read something in the scripture or we read a commentary or we hear something from the pulpit and maybe think he's talking about me? How dare he, you know, come up and make a whole message about me? That's narcissistic. I, I can't do that with that many people here. You know, I mean, Bob's going to be today. James is going to be next Sunday. That's ridiculous. If we're hearing something from the pulpit or the scripture that's convicting do we say, well, I don't like that portion of scripture? Well, I'm not going to listen to it. Well, the pastor used poor exegesis. I don't believe that passage says that. Or do we eventually get over ourselves and come to the realization that it's about God and his way, not what we want? 
Western Christianity is guilty of eisegesis versus exegesis. Exegesis tells us, what are we pulling out of the scripture? What is God trying to show us? Eisegesis is into, and the, the prefix, the Greek prefix. And that means that as American Christians, a lot of times we, we have our lifestyle. And we don't want anyone to tell us anything about changing it one iota. So we eisegete. We take our lifestyle, we take our doctrines, and we f- try to find the scripture that makes us feel better and placates us. That's the beauty of going through the word verse by verse, because this eliminates a lot of those pet doctrines and so much denominationalism that separates us as the body of Christ. It's about God's word. And when we come to the conclusion that his way is a right way, are we prepared to do anything about it? This morning? Today? This week? Or is it just something for a Sunday morning? 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Things are starting to heat up here. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. So instead of answering Christ's challenge and his questions, which of you convicts me of sin? I'll tell you the truth. If you follow me around long enough, you'll find some sin that you can convict me of. Trust me, because I'm a sinner saved by grace. For Jesus to make that claim, who is he? The disciples said, even the winds and the waves obey. Who is he? Jesus is God, period. Nobody else could make the claims that he makes. Nobody. And here's a litmus test. Take all the words that he says in this gospel, right? I and the Father are one. Who can convict me of sin? Let's take them all and let's say them out loud to ourselves and say, can I say that? Can a man say that? Absolutely not. But they say, instead of challenging him or taking him up on the challenge, three things. You have a demon. You're a Samaritan, which was an insult in those days to say to a Jewish person. And three, we're not born of fornication. That could be a little side slap or a backhanded you know, insult at the virgin birth. Isaiah 7 speaks about it. Isaiah 9 speaks about it. They don't want to hear it. Oh, we heard the stories about Mary. Whisper, whisper, whisper. Joseph's not his real father. Whisper, whisper. Same thing happens in the church today, doesn't it? But the Bible is clear, thousands of years before it happened, that there would be the virgin will come forth uh, and be with child. We can't come to the Father except through the Son. And we're gonna, this is going to keep getting ratcheted up all the way up through John 14. You know, uh, I'm the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes through me, through the Father, except through me. And we can't say that we're of God if we're disregarding what his word says. I want to read 1 John 3 verses. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. I've read it before. This scripture, to me, I could read it every day because it's that powerful. And it really cuts at the heart of the Christian community. Listen, there's a Christian community here in Jamesburg. Every church has a Christian community. But is it a self-righteous community? Is it a proud community? Is it a pharisaical community? It says this, This is the message which we have heard from him, Jesus, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Let's start with that premise. Six, if we say that we have fellowship with him, 
and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Nobody wants to be called a liar, but the Bible is very clear. God's word cuts right to the heart. We lie. When I walk in darkness and I'm off the path and I say that I'm close to God at that point in my life, I'm lying. Lying to myself and I'm lying to others around me. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What breaks Christian fellowship? One or both parties not walking in the light. Look at any argument or issue between Christians, among Christians. This is the issue. Somebody's not walking in the light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I love that one. never gets old to me. Verse 51, most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, I wouldn't say that. It's another one of those words that a mere man like myself could never say. And, you know, when when people after service say, oh, that was a great message, I always say, I have great material to work with. I mean, how can I go wrong with the word of God? If I just read it, uh, you might like the service because it's his word. How is this plausible? Jesus said before, he who believes in me has from this point eternal life eternal life he who believes in jesus has eternal life he who follows his words will not see death powerful 52 then the jews said to him now we know that you have a demon abraham is dead and the prophets and you say if anyone keeps my word he shall never taste death are you greater than our father abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead Whom do you make yourself out to be? Third concept, death. There's a temporal death. There's a bodily death. We understand. We sorrow. We go to funerals. But Jesus was speaking about spiritual death. He was speaking about where we'll be in one place or another for all of eternity. Why? Because he wanted to warn us not to go there. Death for the body, it's destroyed, it decays, it dissipates, it goes into the ground, it becomes a food for an animal, it becomes a a haven for flies and their larvae. It's kind of disgusting, isn't it? When the body dies and you leave it in an open field, it decays. You know, all those little critters out there to to break, break us down to just some bones. That's it. Death for the body. Death for the spirit is eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Conscious, painful, gnashing of teeth, weeping. Revelation 20. Jesus speaks more about hell and punishment than he does about heaven. 54. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it, and it was glad. So he characterizes them, number one, murderers. Now, Jesus can do these things as the Son of God. If Jesus would speak to me audibly, he could stand right here and say, Joe, these are the ten things that are wrong with you, and I'd have to listen to him because he made me. He could see past the facade. He could see past the the manipulation, lies, whatever it is. It goes right for our hearts, and he tells us the truth. So he says, number one, you're murderers. Two, your father is the devil. And three, you're liars. I submit to you that this is a Jesus that some of you have never heard because it isn't popular to preach. Right? The Bible has the bitter and the sweet. 
And some ministries have figured out if I preach the bitter, I'm going to lose people. You know, it's all about head counts, putting checks in the basket. We don't do that here. We speak about everything that the Bible speaks about. The good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak. 54. He said, it is my Father who honors me. The word honor means to esteem and to make glorious. Again, I would not say that personally. It isn't God's job to honor Pastor Joe. It's, it's, that's ridiculous. But it is the Father's job to honor the Son. And the truth is, as believers, where to honor God. We get off track as Christians when we start seeking glory for ourselves. Instead of being all those little pieces that make the machine go, we want to be everything, and we become self-deceived. And then God will put us on the shelf and not use us. As human beings, as sinners saved by grace, it is our job, it is our duty, it is our good pleasure as good soldiers to honor God. And that should be our life's goal. Now, if you are here with us the first time, you may be confused. You may look at the scripture and say, you know, sometimes when Jesus speaks, it looks like he's claiming deity, and sometimes it looks like he's just claiming to be a man. This was the first time in all of eternity that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were, in a sense, more separated than they ever have been before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He sent him to us. This was the plan, that we wouldn't perish if we believe on him, but we would have everlasting life. So as a man, you have to ask the question twice when we speak about Jesus. Could he raise the dead? As a man, probably not. But as God, yes, he could. He had a dual nature when he walked this earth. He tried to teach us obedience. He tried to teach us submission. He tried to teach us to honor God. And he showed us the way. Right? What if God just, um, let's say Jesus didn't come and God just, he just parted the clouds and some book fell to the ground. Oh, this is what I got to do. What he did was he sent his son. He was the living Lagos. He was the word. He was the living book. You know? And he showed us in real time how to live. He, he, and we, we, we're here to emulate him. So understand that Jesus had a dual role at this point in human history. Here's where it really comes out. 57. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them, and so passed by. It wasn't his time yet. In the Greek, if you're a student of the Greek, it's prin Abraham genestai ego aimi. Now let me give you, let's go back to high school grammar, and then we'll talk about this. What are tenses for? Um, you know, English tenses, Spanish tenses, Greek tenses. Today, right now, we're in the present. And a second just passed when I said that. That was the past. Although when I said it, it was the present. So now I'm speaking to you, it's the present again. What I'm going to say in a minute is going to be the future, but in a minute it's going to be the present, and then after that it's going to be the past. You got that? Okay. So we learn tenses so we can negotiate ourselves in linear time. Right? We live in linear time. I can't go back and did what I did undo 10 years ago, even though it broke my heart and it hurt my feelings and ruined some relationship I had. So we negotiate our lives through linear time. And tenses are to help us when we read something or we speak to each other to understand the event and where it occurred in linear time. Make sense so far? This makes no sense what Jesus said. 
You know what's amazing? No tents could hold the Son of God. They can't capture him. He literally said, before Abraham was or to be, I am. That makes no sense in tenses. And the, the writers had to just write it as he said it. Because what Jesus is saying, I'm eternal. I'm the eternally existent one. We see that in Micah 5, right? Everlasting. Uh, for eons, forever. So before Abraham came to be, I am. But he was. No, but he always was. So Jesus, in Exodus 3, the Father says to Moses, tell them, yud heh vav heh, I am that I am. Is that starting to make sense a little bit? You can't hold Jesus down into linear time because he's outside of it. So this is the beauty. When you actually start to study Greek, you, you, the hair stands up on the back of your neck, and you're like, wow, this is amazing, amazing stuff. So what did they do? They took up stones, Leviticus 24, to stone him to get to death. Why? Several Sundays ago, remember I had that big rock? I did the demonstration. Why would they stone him? Because one of the uh, uh, prescribed crimes, enumerated crimes for stoning to death was blasphemy, claiming to be God. They immediately picked on on what he was saying. Whether he was speaking the Koine Greek or Hebrew or whatever he was speaking, Aramaic, they immediately picked up on what he was saying and they immediately took up stones because they didn't buy the incarnation, even though it was in their scripture. So you say, why do they want to stone him? He just said something simple. No, he claimed to be God. Okay, so when anybody asks you, did Jesus ever claim deity? All over John's gospel. You have to, you have to eisegete to say that he wasn't God, you have to tiptoe through John's gospel and avoid all the minefields to not find Christ's deity in this book. So, a few points to consider. Number one, the irony is, beginning in the beginning of chapter 8, which we covered a few Sundays ago, the woman caught in adultery where the religious people were going to stone her. The chapter starts, Jesus saving a woman from religious people trying to kill her. The chapter ends with same religious people wanting to kill him. And I would add this. If you've been preaching for years and nobody even in their hearts wants to hurt you for what you're saying, you're doing it wrong. I don't believe in these flowery ministries where I only say positive things. We emulate Christ. He said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Guess what? You're carrying my message. They crucified me. They're going to come after you too. If you're preaching for years and nobody gets ruffled by what you're saying, you're not doing it right. We can start with the Old Testament prophets, Jesus, the apostles, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Here's the litmus test. Two, Jesus escaped probably without a lot of followers. Is this the second failure in Jesus' ministry? Was that in, uh, was it John chapter 6, where many of his disciples followed him no more? And I'm, I'm being facetious. This is how modern ministry might look at this. Oh, Jesus, you already lost them in, in John 6. Now you're losing followers again. Boy, you just can't hold it together. You should take some advice from us, because we really know how to do it today in the year 2000. No, no. Jesus was more concerned with making disciples than converts. We kind of have it backwards. It's all about big numbers. It's the big show. It's the pyrotechnics. It's the, the, the people walking up and receiving Jesus. No, it's about discipleship, to be a disciplined learner. Why would, again, he's trying to give them the truth. Why are they giving him such a hard time? Because the message provides the truth, and the truth makes us free. And like I did the shackle example, 
My wife uh, did prison ministry with the women for years, and I did it with the men. And there are some, believe it or not, when they get out into the world, they purposely commit crime so they can go back to the comfort of the shackles. It's weird. But you get so used to those chains, you, you get so used to being subservient to someone that you can't live on your own in freedom. And I don't say this to de- denigrate. It's you need to pray for your brothers and sisters behind bars. It's a very, very sad story. And I will tell you this, that if you think without Christ that you're going to make it on your own and you're just going to do it your way, men and, men and women have been around for thousands of years. What does that get you? God has all ingrained in us a sense of purpose. We can't do it without him. And you may say, Pastor Joe, you're wrong. I'm having a good old time. My business is making a fortune. I don't need the Lord. You'll came to the same conclusion eventually that I and many others have come to. And if that's your attitude, this only cost me about 10 bucks, I'll give you the chains. You can wear them. You can mirror your spiritual life with your physical life. But you can't have my handcuffs. I need those. It's, it's sad. It really is. So many are still in bondage. So many look at ads in the newspaper, in these uh, fashion magazines, and they want that lifestyle, even though the truth keeps bearing out what a hard lifestyle it is, characterized by multiple divorces, multiple psychiatrists and psychologists. A lot of these famous people brag about having all these counselors on hand. Um, and it's, it's not. It's the freedom that people think it is, but it's really not. The third point is the truth. The word true and truth, Jesus uses 11 times. Again, God doesn't speak to hear himself talk. Let me read to you John 18, 37 through 38, and I'll wrap it up with that. John 18. This is when uh, Pilate has the opportunity in the world, the temporal, to free Jesus to let him go, to drop the charges. And here's a discussion that ensues. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Jesus didn't grovel like many did. Jesus didn't prostrate himself at Pilate's feet and say, please let me go, I don't want to be crucified. I see how horrible it looks when those people are hanging from that tree. He spoke confidently. You would think that Jesus was in control of the conversation. But let's talk about Pilate. He says, what is truth? Pilate rose to prominence, and you can go on to any of the uh, encyclopedias and you could look at the story of Pontius Pilate, real figure, He rose to prominence, became the governor or the prefect of Judea. He had money, power, status, comfort for that day. Everything that a person could dream of, but it came with a price. If you you study his history, in order to maintain his position, it came with bloodshed, murder, controversy, and eventually his banishment. This was Pontius Pilate's life. And he's here speaking to Jesus right in the center of all that. Truth, reality, actuality, right and wrong, all became casualties of Pilate's success. Maybe he had to lie when he looked in the mirror. Can we look in the mirror and like what we see as a person? And I don't mean appearance. I mean the type of person, our character. Maybe when Pilate put his head on the pillow, he had to deceive himself. 
uh, in order to fall asleep at night. But from the outside, many would have looked at him and said, gee, I want to be like Pilate. Look at that guy. He's surrounded by luxury. He's, he can command 3,000 Roman soldiers at the snap of a finger in that province. I want to be like him. What about us? Is everyone in this room truly free? Are you abiding in his word? Do you know the truth? Do you have true freedom? Are you in bondage to what other people think about you? Are we in bondage to our urges and, and fleshly desires? Or are we truly free? Can we fall asleep at night, confident that we are living the life that God has called us to live? Are we really free, or are we putting on a show? Here is the only formula for freedom, and many have tried other things and it doesn't pan out. I've been there. Number one, to repent of trying to do it without him. It's called a self-directed life, a self-willed life. To give him the glory and to remove it from ourselves. Two, to abide in his word, to live in his word, to remain in his word. Are we going to stumble and fall still? Absolutely. Are we going to still sin? Absolutely. Three, to make it our life's goal to commit to him. And I mean really commit to him. I don't mean come to church and I served on Sunday so I'm good in God's eyes. No, I mean to commit to him. To think about him when we rise up and when we go to sleep, you know, throughout my day, uh, you know, whatever I'm doing, especially if it's challenging, I know he's there and I, I talk to him. To pray, to read the word, to understand the word. God will reveal his truth to us, to his word, and it will make us free. And I would say this, that freedom is freeing, <laughs> you know? Don't you ever wonder sometimes, I really like to be free of this. Can we just be as a Christian? Can we be what God has called us to be and be okay with that, regardless about what others are saying around us? You ever look at somebody and they, they seem to have that freedom? You know, their, their freedom is autonomous of all the trials and the things that are going on around them. Jesus offers that. But in our flesh, we try so many things to make us free, except the one thing that he's prescribed for us. Jesus said, abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And the offer is there for the taking. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, your word is powerful. And uh, maybe sometimes we even cringe the way Jesus spoke to his hearers. But who are we to cringe? Who are we to look at that and say, oh, maybe that was a little harsh? As the one who created us, you know our frame. When you look into our eyes and you look into our soul...